0: Today, we're speaking with Lucinda Hartley, who's the founder of CoDesign Studio and co-founder of Neighborlytics. Now, that's a lot of co's in one sentence. Lucinda is an urban designer turned entrepreneur and uses big data to measure the quality of life and well-being in neighbourhoods. Lucinda is also one of our first guests to have her own TED Talk. We're extremely excited to bring you this interview today and hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome to the show, Lucinda. Thanks for
1: having me, Jess. It's nice to be here.
0: Now, would you mind just giving everyone um, a bit of a background around your experience and your career path? Because from what I understand, it hasn't been a very clear trajectory. You've had a very <laughs> different uh, career background to a lot of people in, in our industry.
1: Yeah, that's that's very true. So I'm a landscape architect and urban designer by training, But the themes that have really held my interest uh, across my career is the intersection of designing cities for people and particularly around how we create socially sustainable places. And a real catalyst for me was about 10 years ago, I read a quote with some research from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in the US who interviewed thousands of people um, about their wellbeing outcomes. And what they concluded from that was that your postcode is as likely to determine your life expectancy as your genetic code. And as someone, as you also do, works in um, urban planning and development, that was pretty shocking to me that despite the billions invested every year, in urban transformation and upgrading that our social outcomes were getting worse not better and that really struck a chord with me to the extent that I did what good millennials would do and quit their day job and moved to Southeast Asia and worked uh, initially for a number of years on slum improvement and upgrading projects and through that experience really saw Uh, A lot of the power of collaborative design of working very intentionally and closely alongside local communities and how that could shift outcomes. Um, That led to a role with the United Nations at the time where the Sustainable Development Goals were being developed and had this really unique opportunity to have a global role um, helping shape some of the SDGs for cities which we have today, particularly around some of the public space indicators. And that got me really interested in measurement um, as well of how metrics and drivers can help us all hold account to standards of how we're going to create cities. And so I guess kind of combining all those things together have led to the, the two ventures I've been involved with over the last decade. So one is Co-Design Studio, which was a place-making consultancy uh, in Australia, which you know, delivered hundreds of neighbourhood improvement projects in a collaborative way uh, with local communities from turning vacant car parks into community centres or um, parks into uh, roads into parks and projects that we actually see everywhere now. But 10 years ago, that was very controversial. Um, and quite difficult to achieve. And I'm I'm now focusing on how we measure the outcomes of cities and use uh, really intelligent big data to help understand who our community is and what they need. Um, And through, through that really, I guess coming full circle of thinking about how we use metrics and drivers to help us create better outcomes for cities. So I'm not sure if I can really call myself an urban designer anymore, but certainly uh, very much work in the space alongside planners and urban designers to help create better outcomes, both through
0: uh, data and collaborative development. And was, yeah. and was uh entre- oh, sorry, Pete, were you going to say something?
2: No, no, you go for it, Jess. Sorry.
0: Was entrepreneurship something that was always in your psyche, do you think? It's an interesting question
1: whether entrepreneurship was uh, always something that was um, part of me. I get asked that question quite a lot, and I think it's quite hard to determine. I mean, I grew up living in a lot of different countries. I I grew up in about 10 different places, including spending a lot of my teenage years in Kenya and Zimbabwe. And I think something about that experience uh, of growing up very much a global citizen, I think, opened my eyes to the realms of possibilities of, of you know how big the world is and, and how big the problems in the world are so I guess I was aware on that level uh, but in terms I never actually saw myself as someone who would go into business I remember uh, you know being a consultant in my early career and thinking who on earth would want to run their own company like that just sounds like a whole lot of admin and a whole lot of work like who would want to do that uh, but as I went on, I guess I saw the power of entrepreneurship in being able to solve really big problems. And I think that's really what being an entrepreneur is, is finding new solutions to problems and you know, lots of us are doing that every day within other companies um, as entrepreneurs and and others are launching new ventures uh, to solve other problems outside. So I think it has always been a part of me in that sense and that I've always been inspired about how we create change and create problems in the world. But it certainly wasn't something that I grew up thinking that I'd I'd ever do.
2: Lucinda, you you mentioned about data and there's a saying, if it matters, it gets measured. Yeah. Um, We'll come to that. But can you just explain, you know, neighbor Neighborlytics? Am I pronouncing it correctly?
1: That's right. Yep, Neighborlytics.
2: And, and yeah, can thank you. Just you. sort of give us a bit of background on that.
1: Thanks, Peter. Neighborlytics is a social analytics platform for neighborhoods, and we solve what we call the human data gap that exists in the property sector and urban development. So. Most of the data that we use to make decisions in our work relates only to the physical environment. So we look at land use zoning, we look at property prices, we look at transport patterns. But what we don't look at is the community, the culture, the experience, the lifestyle, and what we know is if we're designing places for people, it's really hard to do that without any data about the people. You know, if you look at the parallel in product design or, you know, if you were designing an app, you'd never dream of designing an app without a really intelligent understanding of who your customer was and what they needed. But in planning and development, we, we do that every day to some level, uh, not because we don't care I think we care deeply but because the data isn't available we've got the census which is you know at the moment recent but often up to five years old and it also only tells a story about residents and who lives there not who uses the neighborhood who works there what people's lifestyle preferences and behaviors are And so NaibleLedic solves that problem by tapping into a whole range of big data that we have available to us every day through social media, web-based interactions and smartphones, and combines that into data sets that help us answer who the community is and what they need.
0: And so, Lucinda, how does that data actually help us understand what residents need?
1: So, one of the things that's really interesting when we're thinking about what information and data that we need to create decisions is that there's a big difference between what we say, our opinion, and what we do. And an example I often give of that is that if you ask me in a survey how often I go to the gym, I'm probably going to tell you what I want you to think about me or how often I go running rather than what I actually do. But if you looked at my Strava account or if you looked at my cell phone location, you would actually see what I actually did. And so if we're trying to design uh, a place, let's say we're looking at a new park, we're looking at a streetscape upgrade or a transit infrastructure project, and we want to know what is going to create the best outcomes for people in this place, we would really need to understand how that place was used right now, as well as some trends for how it might be likely to be used in the future. So that information tells us where people spend time. uh, It could be what what they spend money on. Uh, it could be their lifestyle values. so whether one neighborhood you know people are interested in fitness and dog walking and in another neighborhood it's more about um, family and um, activities at home. So it helps us understand the persona of the of the community and and that then helps us understand what those particular asset needs are so perhaps there's needs for Um, you know cafes and hospitality or there might be lifestyle needs so there might be needs for particular activities and activation in parks and public spaces and so the the big data can help us uh, at a very local level understand and map uh, those community needs in a way that's actually very difficult to get from survey information because you're typically only surveying less than one of the population
2: we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at ww.1milegrid.com.au.
2: Lucinda, you're pointing to a disruption in um, public consultation uh, in terms of the traditional survey methods. Uh, We might describe them as analogue and your new approach that you've cited where you look at actually what people do. So do you see that as disrupting public consultation process? I mean, how does that fit? I mean, normally people, normally with public authorities, they survey people rather than analyze people do you see the two working together or what's the gel there
1: we see that big data and public consultation work side by side and and one doesn't replace the other so big data is a disruption in that it helps us see part of neighborhoods that we could never actually see before and we used to make a lot of assumptions about by observations perhaps but people's uh, opinions, desires, needs, aspirations for the future are absolutely critical also to any decision. So we're not trying to replace engagement, um, but we we just hold in balance that engagement is often um Uh, very limited in the uh, number of people that you can access or the people you know whose education and language might make it um, accessible to them and also it's it's talking to opinions needs and aspirations which is really really important to to understand and pay attention to but it, it tells one side of the story as our behavior and lifestyle patterns tell us the other side of the story so we very much see those things as complementary and working together.
2: And I'll just jump in there again, Lucinda. It, it, your approach might get rid of some of the bias in the traditional methods, in that, yeah. the people who want things uh, and know how the system works typically get the airtime or get the attention. Whereas a lot of more uh, passive people, or who uh, maybe come from cultural backgrounds where they're scared of authorities, um, that, Do you see where I'm going with this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that we look at all the data that we have available for making decisions and what we know from the big data record, particularly if we're looking at information that comes from aggregated mobile phones and and things like that, that we avoid having a bias around language or education and participation because even people from very low economic circumstances um, will generally have a smartphone and, and be participating in a data set that way. Uh, It doesn't mean that we should only look at behaviour and not intentionally do as much as we can to seek the broadest um, variety of of feedback that we can. We we absolutely should do that. And I say that as someone who's worked for a decade in community engagement previously. Um, But it is also important that we look at the full picture and sometimes people's lifestyle patterns will say it, tell it tell a more complete story than the, the limited information that we might have from a survey.
0: And how reliable is this big data? Is it tested and what weighting is given to the data? So we
1: look, in terms of how we look at how reliable the data is, we look at a lot of global research that's emerging around how you can use mathematics and advanced analytics to describe human behaviour. A lot of that research comes out of MIT's Human Dynamics Lab. And with any data set, there's gonna be bias. So there's bias in surveys have talked about. Of course, there's different biases that come um, with big data sets. And it's really important to understand what those bias is and therefore what the information is useful for. So it's not a, it's not a um, magic silver bullet that will tell us everything that we wanna know about a neighborhood. But for example, if you look at Instagram, Now, Instagram is, of course, a very biased data set. People generally are going to put photos up of things to show that they were somewhere, they were with someone, they were doing something. It helps us understand the key highlights and important places in a neighborhood. Uh, But if we, people typically won't Instagram their dry cleaning or, you know, even more difficult moments in their life. So if we understand that as a bias, Instagram image data can help us understand what people like and want to share and think is iconic or characteristic about a particular neighbourhood. And that's something that can be useful in helping us understand a particular type of place value. But we would need to look at, you know, the information that we get from a different data set will have uh, a different skew, um, you know, like ratings and reviews. There are certain types of places that will have lots of ratings and reviews and there are others that won't. Uh, There are types of places that have lots of photos and lots that won't. So, in terms of telling a complete story, our goal is to bring in and match as many different metadata sets as we can to understand that place. But it's also about understanding the bias that comes with any data set and therefore what's useful and what kinds of decisions are best made with that.
2: It's a bit, it's a problem with open source data like that, Lucinda. I mean, for example, I'm not invested in social media at all. I just find it, you know. Uh, not not my cup of tea.
0: You, you post the odd photo, Pete. I've seen a few of Very
2: you. rarely, Jess. Very <laughs> rarely. My life is so boring. But now, now listen, we, we've had all this now. I'm going to bring a sceptical note here. Um, mm. to, so we've had this sort of techno approach to planning before. Uh, we've had people walking around in lab coats with uh, big mainframe computers. You probably don't know this, Jess, but there used to be all these films that I used to see when I was at school um, of people going around People were in glasses looking at data reels saying that they were planning uh, our, our cities in a, in a scientific way uh, and that we would all benefit from that. You know what I'm talking about, Lucinda?
1: Mm,
2: and, yeah, uh, I do. So there, there is a bit of a pushback on the data approach. Like, for example, not all communities are uniform. Um, sometimes build it and they will come maybe. Uh, what 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 do you think? I mean, my skepticism of—I mean, I like big data. I see everything you're saying, but there's a certain skepticism. What what do you <laughs> say to that?
1: I think it's always helpful, to healthy to be skeptical. But I think you're asking a different question there. So you're talking about data generative design, as to whether I could I could ask a computer model to design the ideal neighbourhood for me, and. The question I would have with that is I would be sceptical because I would say, well, designing for who, designing for what context, is there such thing as a perfect neighbourhood? And increasingly we see automated generative design in say architecture because there is less constraints often of an internal building than there is of a neighbourhood or a plan that has many more factors around people coming and going and transit and water management and land use and all of these other things. What we're talking about at Neighborlytics is not so much predictive design, but really good context analysis. So I would probably put it back and say, if we don't understand the community and what their needs are, it's it's harder for us design to design a really bespoke and meaningful place because we're not seeing the full story and it's really easy for us then to make assumptions or go, well, it worked in Copenhagen, it should work here. When we're glossing over the assumptions about the cultural and lifestyle needs of a particular place are are really different. So we Mm. see ourselves as a critical input into that customer research phase to help understand the full complete story. Uh, Uh, And in uh, terms uh, of uh, predictive models. uh, Yeah.
2: I see it as a wonderful layer of uh, understanding the, you mentioned about uh, beauty and, or, you know, well, attractive places. There is Mm. a, there is a place in the UK uh, program called scenic or not where they post photos and uh, there's thousands and thousands of people judge those photos as to on a scale of one to 10, how attractive they are. Mm, And all that material is being fed into uh, AI to, develop um what is what people find fairly attractive and what they don't mm. so 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 that's all coming um uh, so but what you do is and using new resources to answer old problems yeah
1: okay. that's That's fair for now. And I do agree with you that we are moving to a model where things will become more automated and we will see more AI and we will see more data generated information. I think that any kind of um, models like that are models and they're only as good as the data that powers them. So I would actually recommend that I don't think it's something that we should fight necessarily, but it's something that we should become really educated about Because if we don't leverage the data, then we risk, um, you know, relying too heavily on our own biases, um, which, you know, sometimes in neighbourly data, and I'm just giving an example because it's the data set that I know, but a neighborhood lifestyle will highlight particular places that are important or valued that... um, our customers don't think are true like in one neighbourhood that had a Michelin star restaurant and there was actually a little hawker stall that had a much higher rating in terms of how much people loved and valued it than this this sort of Michelin star restaurant and they just thought that could definitely not be true because it was this big anchor but that's actually you know a level of bias that we're bringing to a neighbourhood that when we actually looked at how many people visited this hawker stall and how much they loved it it was actually more iconic for an everyday user of the neighbourhood than this Michelin star attraction was. So, yeah, I think being educated about all kinds of data so that we understand, including our own, you know, existing methods have their own biases. So the more that we're educated about that, then the more that we can leverage data to create genuinely better outcomes.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Another topic that obviously we talk a lot about in Victoria, but, you know, is um, spoken about in different formats across Australia and across the world is this whole idea of 20-minute neighbourhoods and um, how that creates healthier cities. How are people using the Neighborlytics data to create those healthier cities?
1: Yeah, so we have a way of understanding and validating a 20-minute neighbourhood. So, our standard um, data capture is a 20-minute neighbourhood. It's a 20-minute walk. And then what we're able to do is look at all of the assets that exist in that neighbourhood and scale them on a per population needs basis um, and also able to benchmark and compare it to what other neighbourhoods that are typical or similar would have. And that gives us uh, a framework of understanding needs in terms of things like access to fresh food or how well does the neighbourhood meet daily needs and uh, it's in... It's interesting to look at that from a big data perspective, not just from a land use or business registration perspective, because we see a whole lot of other things that help meet daily needs, like, you know, activities, events, programs, parents groups. It's not just about, um, you know, the building itself. There are many other uh, things that help make it a 20-minute neighbourhood. So a lot of our customers, um, in addition to wanting to understand about the community and lifestyle, will... Work with analytics to understand an assessment of a 20-minute neighbourhood and, and what therefore amenity needs are most needed or potentially what amenities are oversubscribed in a neighbourhood and it might be a risk to add more if you've already got loads and loads of cafes and maybe another one's a, a higher risk. Um, so those are some of the ways that we uh, look at the assets that are needed to support a healthy, livable neighbourhood.
2: And, and Lucinda, livability uh versus well-being what's the difference can you just te- tease out those two terms uh, yeah. from your practice
1: yeah we use both those terms in different ways i would describe livability about whether you have access to the assets and amenities that you need to support livability so you know libraries child care schools parks etc well-being uh, looks at how those assets Um, help us understand our our healthy lifestyle so it is related to there's many different ways of defining well-being there's your subjective well-being which is how well I feel so that's a feeling there's an outcomes-based well-being which looks at how you know neighbourhoods correlate to things like um, you know hospital visits and life expectancy and then there's perhaps an input well-being which is what the side of that that neighbourhood is um looks at is to whether or not you have the right mix of assets and amenities in your neighborhood to support your well-being. So that comes down to what are the sort of social determinants of health, uh, the place-based social determinants of health in a neighborhood.
0: And Lucinda, with the benefit of your neighbor insight, what imp- impacts have you seen COVID having on cities? Is the CBD dead or is the game just changed substantially? <laughs>
1: yeah. I think everyone's asking um, what's happening to CBDs and the future of work and uh, Definitely data, the
0: topic of the moment.
1: Some, yeah, some interesting insights in that perspective. Certainly our data will shows and reflects the patterns that we've all experienced around a drop-off in activity and what's coming back. But what we are seeing is that the uh, in the different thematic drivers of data around CBDs that we're seeing that it is retail, hospitality, bar and dining that's doing the heavy lifting for recovery, cultural events, um, and certainly that's where a lot of the investment is going. If you look at the um, employment related activity, that is really quite flatline and not really significantly coming back compared to some of the other ancillary, uh, ancillary activities. So what we would project from that is, is not so much that the CBD is dead, but that its um, use is much more around a destination economy than it is or sort of an entertainment economy than it is uh, a work economy, which is, I think, you know, is the sorts of topics that lots of urban thinkers are, are hypothesising and strategizing about right now. So I would say that the game's changed more than the CBD is dead. But interesting things that we see in the data is like different types of strengths are emerging So different particular places are becoming popular that perhaps weren't before. And that helps us understand what the drivers or attraction are and how we might entice people back to the office if that's our goal.
2: Interesting enough, Jess, when I worked at the Melbourne City Council a very, very long time ago, there was a push to rename the CBD the CAD, the Central Activities District. I mean, you know what? What's old is now new. So, I, I, Lucinda, I take your point. The um, it, it's more uh, an event or social place. But just just moving on, has there been one particular project of note during the Nebletics uh, journey? You can let us know about.
1: Yeah, there's lots of really, uh, uh, or maybe two
2: or three. Or...
1: Yeah, interesting projects, but um, the. Yeah so I Is think it, that one, might one be an unfair really,
2: question.
1: Sorry. No 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 it's alright I'm just my head's going through what's a, what's a relevant one here. Um, this might not be the best one but I'll, I can I can share this one. Uh, we've recently been working uh, at a global scale uh, around uh, innovation districts. Uh, which is a big topic for many cities around the world right now and looking at how they attract the best talent and investment and that's more important than it ever has been because we're living in a global economy where people can vote with their feet and work online and live anywhere Uh, and that's certainly a question for Melbourne too around a number of innovation districts being established and we were able to do a um, global benchmarking survey of because the data is global and we can look at digital data scan across uh, 10 to 20 precincts globally and look at essentially what the recipe is for those successful innovation districts around their use, their activity mix, uh, the types of activations that go on there. And that study has been particularly in relation to uh, some work we're doing around the World Cup, infrastructure assets in Qatar for the FIFA World Cup. And uh, what that's really highlighted is that the most successful innovation districts are not the ones that have the really big anchor tenants like your Google or your universities, um, although that's a critical you know, part of the mix. They're the most successful ones are the ones that have really doubled down and focused on things like independent retail and local hospitality and um, that really fine grain uh, type of amenity. And so we've seen that really show up in the data and that really helps us inform our local strategies
2: around how places are used and experienced. Uh, Lucinda, in in the States, there's a lot of movement from companies to lower tax states and less crime-ridden big cities. Uh, Does that fit in? I mean, they're sort of macro. Companies are not necessarily massive global corporations or something, but companies are moving to climate taxes and safety and housing affordability. Yeah, any comment on those things?
1: Uh, I haven't looked at particularly that trend, but I'm aware that that's uh, that is happening. Um, but yeah, but I probably don't have too much to comment on that one. Okay.
0: Lucinda, just want to move on um, and talk a little bit about the development industry more broadly. Um, obviously, you've had the benefit of being an urban designer and a landscape architect. Um, how have you seen? The relationship between those industries and planning and, and architecture more broadly integrate over your years in the industry?
1: I feel things are much more integrated between planning, design and architecture than they were 10, 15 years ago. I, I do recall uh, a lot of, you know, it felt like the professions were pitted against each other uh, a little bit. And I feel like there's a, a strong recognition of more collaboration. And, and where that's coming from, I think, is that many companies are adopting a more of a design thinking model and approach. And they're saying it's less about whether you're a planner or a landscape architect or an architect, but more about how we use solid design principles and design thinking for problem solving. And that sort of commonality across the industries, at least as in my observation, has helped drive um, more collaborative outcomes as well as having a stronger outcome focus on, well, you know, if our goal is here is to create great places for people, how do we more collectively work towards what those common objectives are rather than staying in silos?
2: Lucinda, what your company does is fantastic, I think, because it it enables, say, strategic planners or city managers or whole organisations to get really up-to-date information and analysis and brings the data because the, one of the problems I see is that it's hard for say grunt planners and I don't mean that in a bad sense but you know people working in local government or state government to be able to be enriched by receiving that data or or, or having a link person explain it and give them confidence to it um how does that sound
1: yeah, that is very true. I would say, in general, uh, there is a low data maturity across our industry and uh, a healthy and sometimes unhealthy skepticism towards it, and that's a that's just a reflection of where I think our industry is at. I think some other industries, particularly like financial industries, financial services, have gone through a digital transformation much earlier and have adopted a lot more automation and AI in the way that they work, you know, from 10 years ago. And that transformation, that digital transformation is happening in planning and design now. And so it does feel like uh, even if the information is available, uh, our maturity to, you know, reuse, action, implement, measure change over time um, has, is, is challenging uh, in that regard. But I'm also really encouraged that uh, it's changing very quickly and in in many ways the pandemic was a massive catalyst for that where we all had to embrace digital transformation on every level, like not just working. It was like how we accessed libraries and how we met with friends and and that has actually created uh, a a real opening and a desire and interest in thinking differently and using technology differently as well.
0: I think given that we we still have some councils in Melbourne, or sorry, I should say we did have some councils in Melbourne that up until 12, 18 months ago still required um, paper submission of applications. I, I do think we have a long way to go, but um, are there other aspects, I guess, within the town planning and urban design and development industry that you think would benefit from, um, from other digitisation or other, um, other technology inputs? In
1: lots of ways, I see that digital transformation is a democratic process. In lots of ways, it provides things that are just so much more available because they're more shareable online, they can have more people collaborate on them. So I think there's an enormous opportunity there to um, digitise services in particular. So I guess there is the process of planning and design and the outcomes and how that, that happens for the city managers and planners. But there's also the services that our um councils offer and how easy is it to access them what does customer service look like and i know that's something that costs, like many councils are looking at all the time but i think that that um if you look at you know no one goes to a bank anymore like you wouldn't dream of it um you use an app um so it should be that we should be accessing our public services in perhaps a similar level of convenience which would also make it more democratic. And and I think that's where things are going, Um, but there's more to be done there for sure. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details.
2: Lucinda, data for testing planning philosophies, Um, basically gaming... Uh, forward, a bit of a Sim City for adults, maybe. Do, do, do you see what you do? Uh, there's always certain assumptions in carrying forward data, uh, but do you see this sort of testing of planning uh, philosophies or strategies using data has some benefit?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I, that's very much where I see, you know, our future at Neabletics is how do we actually use that as more not a, not a decision making but an investigative tool to, to stress test different scenarios you know transport planners have been using this for decades like they create transit models and they look at different scenarios and then the big challenge there is it doesn't have all the variables so if you're optimizing for traffic flow you might be you know creating a bad livability outcome somewhere else but you might not be aware of it because your model was you know too simplistic to consider all of the other um, human benefits that go on with that so certainly, one of the things that we've done at Neighborlytics is looked at a, a social prosperity scoring framework for how we actually score different aspects of a neighbourhood in terms of their amenities and their community behaviours. And based on that, then you do you can do scenario modelling. I would say rather than prediction, you can do scenario modelling to look at well, if I increased um, you know population or density or walkability in this area, what would be the likely social prosperity uplift I might see in that place? And you know, I think architecture has done that. Um, you know well in the past and i think planning the only reason it really hasn't is that the variables are so complex you know there's so many different layers to consider um and so that's definitely a future but it's been harder to to tackle perhaps because of its complexity well it, model,
2: modeling's fraught with problems isn't it, lucinda i mean as you mentioned the more layers you put on um that the, maybe the reliability of the modeling decreases i mean we've seen lots of examples of that
1: yeah but i I would challenge there because i I do agree with you that the modeling is challenging but then our alternative to not do it means that we're relying on the limitations of our own brains and our personal experience which has another set of limitations like it's not good or bad necessarily it's just it's it's a different set of limitations that we're applying to the problem if we're doing it manually too
0: pete it sounds like lucinda needs to be part of your um your grand plan of having a, a town planning competition
2: well, well, listen, that's what um, you know, we, we've raised this question on on, on some podcasts. And, uh, I, you know, I, I was asked, how, how do you get better planning ideas out there? And or how do you reform something? Or how do you make things better? And, and I simply said, you know, go to the market and have competitions. <laughs> but, um, and, and that's worked in other ways. You know, I mean, certain um, breakthroughs have come through. Okay, he, here's, a, here's a prize or whatever. Um, go for it. Um, Jess, it's going to come. It's going to come.
0: (laughs) It's only a matter of time. (laughs) Sorry, sorry,
2: Jess. I interrupted. Sorry.
0: No, that's okay. Uh, Lucinda, you've been a trailblazer for women in our industry and have been awarded some, some very big titles such as the AFR top 100 women of influence and one of Melbourne's Now, Now, you
2: better explain to our listeners what the AFR is, Jess.
0: Australian financial review top 100 women of influence and one of Melbourne's top 100 most influential people. How do those titles make you feel and what do they mean to you?
1: Uh, I mean, it's interesting. So, some of those things, um, I guess, I was nominated by others for. Um, so, you know, it's a nice accolade to have. I think it's really important that we celebrate innovation in lots of different ways. I think it's really important that we celebrate and recognize women. I, I never used to think that that was something that was particularly important in my early career, Uh, but it really comes back to you can't be what you can't see. And I think it's so important that we celebrate all kinds of diversity um, in the way that, you know, the different achievements that have have been made along the way. So, yeah, I I think that, that, um, you know, awards are awards, but they do, I guess, help build Um, credibility and um, help build a platform, I guess, for some of the other changes that we're trying to make. So,
0: yeah. And and what would you like to see in terms of leadership in the planning and property industry?
1: Uh, That's an interesting question around leadership in the planning and property industry. I I would like to see a lot more diversity. I I feel like we are a very white uh, profession and and I say that as someone who is white, uh, middle class and all of those other privileges that come with that. Um, but we, because of that, you know, we have this inherent biases that, that come with the way that we would make decisions or what we think good looks like and the places that we draw inspiration from. So I do think that is shifting as our profession becomes, you know, more diverse over time. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at the fact that, you know, the recent reports that came out, um last year from plan australia showed like you know a third or perhaps half of women don't feel safe in public space at night you know that's in melbourne in 2021 um and i feel like if we had more women making decisions about cities that we would have less of those um factors highlighted and and similarly with all kinds of other um biases that we we can't see um you know it's no week this week um and thinking about how we can be good allies and um, um, work with different Indigenous leaders to also help us see place differently as well.
0: Yeah I think you're right I think that has changed significantly over the last few years Um, but I think you've got some really good insights there particularly um, it sounds like you've had a a really varied um, background living in 10 different countries growing up and um, as you were saying before that gives you that real um, insight into the things that we should be doing and, and the ways in which our cities um, can benefit from those sorts of um, different of p- different opinions and different backgrounds. Um, I also wanted to ask you about mentors and whether mentors have been part of your success and who were your mentors? Yeah, mentors are a
1: critical part Um, of my journey they still are um, and for you know most leaders I think and I feel incredibly lucky to be able to be supported by a whole cast of people over the years um, you know from board chairs to investors to um, uh, other industry leaders and uh, they've been you know I've had a really wide variety um, different ages different genders different roles Uh and I think what I've sought out particularly is there are some of those mentor relationships that happen more organically through people I was working with or perhaps who were, you know, investors um in our business, but there's uh others that I've sought out and I would really encourage anyone to do that. It's um it's when when people um people always think that others will be too busy to um say yes, but really um you can learn a lot from someone's experience just over a cup of coffee and, and if you reach out to someone and say that you're really interested to learn about their career experience. And could you buy them a copy? I found that most people say yes. Um, you might have to wait a while to get into the calendar, but that's, um, I really sought out and found some incredible mentors by just asking, I guess.
2: Lucinda, we I, I believe you're the first guest we've had um, who's had a, their own Ted talk. Um, do you enjoy the you know, keynote speaking circuit? And, what would be your three top tips on giving a good public presentation?
1: Yeah, thank you. My TED Talk was uh, about 10 years ago, so I've probably, you know, in some ways changed my mind about some of the things that (laughs) i said in that talk.
2: This is a great researcher.
1: um, (laughs) But um, uh, I love public speaking and I, I love the creativity of it and also... The ability to share new ideas, I think, to me, that's what it's about. It's about storytelling and a lot of our, uh, you know, day-to-day, when especially when we're working in very technical careers, um, we don't really have space to think about the story and the narrative of the big trends that are going on. And so I find public space provides room and space to, to think about some of those ideas. I think the with any keynote address, um, it's 80% how you deliver it and 20% about what you say. Uh, so certainly paying attention to um, your presence and, and how you, you know, how you speak is very important. But also top tips that I've had along the way is that people can't remember more than three things. And so we might want to cram our talks full of all of these different insights and things, but your audience probably won't remember more than three maximum Um, And so trying to identify those kind of key points uh, is also really clear. And the other part is to not be afraid to tell personal stories that even at, you know, professional conferences and things where um, I think we are often wanting to be, um, you know, show off our technical expertise as we should, um, because we're all there to learn about that as well. But often a more engaging talk comes when we can really empathise with the speaker from sharing from our own experience. So I'd encourage people to do that too.
0: I think storytelling has been a common theme through some of our more recent podcasts as well, Pete. Um, the importance of it and and the fact that we we think overall it seems to be a bit of a dying art in the in the way in which we do it and and the purpose of it. So I'm really glad to hear you say that. I think that's a really really good tip. Um, what is your advice for pursuing the exciting path of entrepreneurship? I think if anyone knew how difficult entrepreneurship was, they wouldn't start. So
1: maybe that's a good thing to (laughs) to not not research it too much, um, because uh, you'll start. Uh, I always come from the perspective from a quote that someone told me once is that you can't steer a parked car, so you have to start moving. And so if you overthink it, you'll never move. Um, But you'll learn a lot once you start moving, and you'll learn how to steer and grow. So my advice would be that if you've got any kind of inclination of an idea to get moving with what the first steps are that you could take and the rest will become much clearer once you start rather than trying to work it out before you begin
2: great 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 advice lucinda i love that little anecdote anecdote about the car now uh, now lucinda we've reached podcast extra culture corner which is in the final quarter of the podcast how do you refresh and relax
1: I relax by running, actually, which I know is a very active thing to do, but it's quite meditative for me and I you know, I run pretty slowly. Uh, I've always been a runner, but in more recent years, I've got involved in long distance running. So that creates space in my schedule where um, I have time either by myself or with friends where I can get out, particularly into nature. Um, and uh, I use that time to listen to podcasts and help us keep fit. So that's one way that I try to create space to um, relax and interesting on that on about five years ago I decided that exercise was going to become a non-negotiable part of my schedule that you know with family and work it's always like the first thing to go and I decided that it had to come first even if that meant like pushing client deadlines back and I've managed to stick to that so far so um You know,
2: maybe my clients aren't very happy about that,
1: but it's. I'm sure they're happy.
2: I'm I'm sure they're happy if you're happy because you'll be more productive and more energetic and and well being, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. That's that's my goal anyway.
2: And and something you've um, read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest to our listeners?
1: Yeah, so I, two things I, I've uh, been spending time on recently. One is an app called Mojo, which is created by Ben Crow, who's Ash Barty's mindset
0: coach. And I love him.
1: Yeah, it's a bit it's of a great. step-by-step guide to applying different um, performance mindsets. And I found that enormously helpful, particularly coming out of the pandemic, where I think a lot of us are not feeling particularly energised and inspired. It's just a different way of reframing the things that you can control and not control in your life. So that's a, a good one to download. And, and I've also just coincidentally um, finished, just finished reading or listening to actually on an audio book while I run, um, Stan Grant's Australia Day. And that's probably an irrelevant one because it's Snowdog week this week. But uh, it's been, yeah, I think it's just helpful to, Get different perspectives, um, particularly different Indigenous and Aboriginal stories. So, Love Stan Grant's work, and um, that was a, a book that I recently read too. Uh, and,
2: and Jess, your podcast podcast extras and, and listeners, Jess has just been made a partner at the firm she uh, she's with, Tract. Yeah, congratulations, so congratulations to Thank to you. that. And uh, a long, yeah, you'll be a great partner, Jess. And something that you've been doing or watching or you know whatever, Jess.
0: Uh, I've got two things. Uh, I've just finished a wonderful series on Netflix called The Staircase, which is based on a, um, a documentary by the same name. But the um, the Netflix version is, has Colin Firth and um, Tony Collette and a few other great Actors and Actresses in it. Um, it's about a, a murder on a staircase, um, as the name suggests, but highly <laughs> recommend that. Really, really good one. Um, and just running. I've um, I recently got back into running as well and um, definitely not doing the, the kind of K's that Lucinda's doing, but um, slowly and surely I'm trying to build up to, you know, probably getting back into doing a fun run or something over the next uh, six, 12 months. So um, let's just say it's been a very inactive uh, past 12 months so it's nice to be back out <laughs> on the pavement what about you Pete? Uh,
2: a, cu- a couple of things Jess I'm, I'm reading a fantastic book How the World Really Works by Vaklal Smile uh, he looks at uh, how the world really works in four great transitions of civilization in population agriculture energy and economics and how that they've all transformed the way we live uh, and he, he's, he indicates that you know we've all got masses amount of information at our fingertips, but, you know, very few of us understand how actually things work. And it's, it's a really good informative read for the lay reader, uh, particularly about, you know, issues that, are in the press a lot, such as energy transition, uh, very, very sobering reading. Uh, he's written a number of books. He's a fantastic author and, um, Something else I'm doing, Jess, is uh, tonight I'm volunteering at the Melbourne Magic Festival. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. And uh, we like hope- my
0: microphone was on mute then because I was giggling away.
2: No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I, I love... Lucinda, do you like magic?
0: I don't know enough about magic, I think. Peter, you need to tell me some more. <laughs> I, I want to know, are you dressing up tonight?
2: Uh, I might be required on the stage, Jess. Um <laughs> They're always chopping people's heads off and things like that. So, so Linda, Cinda, really, you've never been to a magic show? Uh, I
1: don't think I have, actually. Like, I've been to maybe circus growing up. Oh, no, no no, yeah. no, no, no,
2: This is not <laughs> a circus. This is no, I'm
1: sure it is not.
2: <laughs> so so Melbourne has, uh, for our listeners, it, it has the biggest magic festival in the Southern Hemisphere. And... Uh, the performances are at one main centre, but also in a number of little cabarets and restaurants and cafes for for smaller uh, places. But um, we are going to hopefully interview the festival director uh, coming up, Lucinda, so about how oh, how they put together it, how they publicise it, how the the mechanics of it, and and you know what they do for it, how they know it's been a success, but. Many many shows are sold out, but I, I would recommend to everyone go to magic and embrace the magic. Put away your scepticism. Enjoy the show.
0: What a I'll message to end on. <laughs> and,
2: and, and talking of shows, Lucinda, you've been a wonderful, inspiring uh, interview subject. Thank you so much, and I hope our listeners uh, get as much out of w- as we have, Jess. So thanks very much. Okay. And thank you, Jess.
0: Peter and Jess. Great to chat this morning. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.